questions that don't have clear answers, issues that can't be resolved through logical analysis, and moments in our lives that can't be engaged with and understood on one's own. Welcome to Ajar, an experiment in collaborative meaning-making with author and professor Joan Ball, strategist Rebecca Taylor, and artist and educator A.M. Bott. This monthly podcast follows weekly Substack articles, one from each member of Ajar, on a topic that is at once timeless and, given where we are in the world, of immediate concern. This month's topic is money. I'd love to start the conversation kind of in a, in a parallel uh, uh, to, to what we traditionally think about money, which is crypto. Uh, which obviously everyone at this point knows about at least conceptually, and I'm I'm curious what what uh, just off the top of your head when I introduce that, like what's your association with the kind of relationship of crypto and money? Is you know in your head when you think about it, is crypto money or is it something else? Is crypto money? Yeah, I I think so. I mean, it's for me, money is simply something we've assigned as how we how we exchange goods and services, right? It's, it's literally just a medium, essentially. And we happen to have chosen dollars. First it was gold, then it's dollars, a digital currency. If someone will accept it in exchange for something else, then in the way our society functions, I suppose it is money. What I think to me is much more interesting and perhaps frustrating about crypto is that it has all of these beautiful, bold ideas about change and decentralization and um, breaking down of gates and and really changing the frameworks and structures we have. And instead, what it's doing really is replicating everything within a digital universe. And I, I think that's really frustrating. I know we've all talked before, you know, about scarcity models, kind of cars and like this idea of finite versus infinite games and and what I see happening there, and I, I think we probably all feel this way, I don't know, in this room anyway, is that they're just replicating those things. you know. And instead of removing gatekeepers, in, in the case of the arts, they're removing quality. And so I, I'm really frustrated in crypto with the sort of big gap that I see between what they say and what's actually happening. You know, the the principles and the fundamentals and and what uh, is really actually taking place. This idea that we're broadening access, changing information, changing hierarchies, changing structures. And really, it feels like we're replicating them and replicating a lot of the same problems that we have in the world. I mean, it, it's sort of the same thing if we look at the foundations of our democracy and and what we set out to do and what it says and then what actually happened for the next several hundred years. There's this there's this big gap there, and I think that's what really frustrates me about it. What you're sharing there, Rebecca, makes me think about value, right? And and maybe that relationship between money, between crypto, and and this notion of what is valuable and how things wind up being assigned value. And I think what a lot of the people, as I understand it, and I don't perceive myself to be an expert in crypto, I know what I know and I, and I follow it and try to understand it more deeply uh, because I do think it's not going away, right? I definitely think it's something that's here with us. But that scarcity, I don't think we 
really know how to assign value without scarcity at the moment, right? So I think part of the reason that's getting replicated is how can I have, you know, whether it's an art piece, a music piece, or whatever people are playing with in crypto, and how can it be valuable if there isn't scarcity? And so I think that it points to, I think that that premise that is shared about the notion that it could democratize or would or should democratize, there's something interesting there in that notion to me. But I also think that the emperor having no clothes about the fact that we don't know how to have an economics of abundance. And as a result, what we're doing is we've got the potential, or at least the perceived potential, that there could be uh, an abundance uh, environment in crypto or in the blockchain. But the humans who are then operating in that abundant environment don't know how to do anything other than put up fences and create scarcity within it. And the money thing, so I, I agree with, with what both of you said on, on you know, the disappointments of the realities of, of, of crypto. You know, for me, it, it, money is a um, embodiment of, of collective agreement on something, right? It is, uh, you know, uh, in America, we got the dollar and, and that dollar represents a certain collective agreement about how we're going to exchange things, Right. Inherent in it is some some adjacent collective agreements on equity uh, that we don't live up to. But but you know theoretically some adjacent you know uh, if if somebody charged us uh, uh, you know forty two dollars for a coke uh, or, or actually uh, early days of COVID somebody charged us uh, uh, forty two dollars for a bottle of Purell, uh, we'd say that's a breaking of the collective agreement around money and and the kind of a, a adjacent equity agreements right. You're exploiting money. You're exploiting the agreement on money. And, and, and the promise of Bitcoin and, and you know, crypto in general, in, in, you know, for the zealots, which gets you know, one excited if one only listens to the kind of you know, theoretical side of crypto, is that it's a different collective agreement. We're going to make a different agreement about how we exchange. It's going to be transparent. It's going to be hierarchy free. It's going to be all these things, right? And in practice, it's different. And, and so it, it, it's why I kind of raised the question initially, because it's, it's what came up with my grad students yesterday, is, is that we're bringing um, unexamined uh, agreements about exchange from the old world into the crypto world. And now it's just another version of, of what we had with, you know, with old currency uh, in practice. On this, so, so that's one point. And then on this, the second thing that I heard in there, like, scarcity is good in certain domains of life. In art, scarcity is critical. It is only because Van Gogh only painted this one version of the cafe that we are so you know, taken with it. If, if, if there were 50 somehow you know, uh, uh, versions of it, we'd be less taken with it in a certain way. It's the kind of unique uh, 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 expression, or if, or if 100 people painted exactly like Van Gogh, which you know, wouldn't be the case, right? Uh, but, but if it were, we'd value it less right? because it's such a unique expression of his. It's the fact that this is, a, you know, this piece, this piece of music, this piece of this painting, this whatever, is this unique one-of-a-kind expression from this artist that, that is part of what makes it have some appeal, right? Not because it's scarce in the sense of, oh, it's mine and I can, you know, no one else can have it, but it's a unique one-time expression. It's inherently scarce. Absolutely. I, I think maybe 
what I was saying got misunderstood if, if that's what you thought I was saying, because I absolutely believe in, in scarcity in that regards. What I was talking about replication of the models and the systems and the frameworks of the gatekeeping. It's not about the scarcity of, of a single object. I still very much can value that, but it's sort of this idea that we're creating land to sell in the metaverse. You know, it's it's that model of scarcity that I, I was really questioning. It's this replication of a lot of these different issues we see in the marketplace uh, because absolutely, I agree, scarcity Scarcity and value have a have a relationship, or at least should in in certain ways. Yeah, this is a this is a convoluted topic for me because what's happening to the arts in the metaverse and and through NFTs is is really problematic, and we are claiming to break down gatekeeping, and we're really just breaking down quality. And so, actually, that valuation of the talent that you were just discussing is completely lost there. And there's actually a heralding and like a pride in the antithesis of that, that kind of cuts to the core of who I am in a, in a way that's really chafes at me, that we, we no longer appreciate that talent. We're all about heralding the guy who couldn't do that instead at, to be bought and sold by someone who has made their money buying and selling things like that rather than supporting that incredible talent. So it's not scarcity. Like authentic scarcity is a beautiful thing. Artificial scarcity yes. is, is a challenge. Perfect. Right? And so now if you take that in the NFT, our crypto world, and now kind of backtrack into, into the money conversation, like for me, I love money. And I've never gone after it. Like it finds me. And when I say I love money, it's like I love water. Like it, it fuels something in terms of my being able to act on commitments. I'm not interested in guzzling three gallons of water because, oh, water. Like I don't know what to do with three gallons of water in my body, but I love water because it allows me to, you know, kind of, kind of, kind of do things and be kind of really productive and focused and uh, kind of, you know, take embodied action on my commitments. And that's kind of what money is for me. And I think part of the thing we've, we've, we've fucked up with money in the world is created artificial scarcity around people's ability to enact their commitments and made money the gate that you have to go through, right? It's like water scarcity. It's like, you know, if I, if I hold back water, you can only, you know, uh, 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 farm so much of land that you, you, you can own 10,000 acres of land. But if I hold back your water supply, you're only farming 10 acres of it. And that's one of the things I think we do with money historically is we, 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 it, it creates an artificial gate to people's being able to really, you know, operationalize, as it were, their commitments, their, their you know, uh, kind of embodied practice, whatever that's going to be in the world. And so what becomes scarce is the opportunity to actually have my life get focused on what it is I'd have it get focused on if I had enough water. Um, I've never thought about it like that, but it, it, it absolutely makes sense. Um, yeah, I, I think for me, money is a neutral. Mon money is an almost so many things I think in life actually that we perceive to be good or bad are actually neutrals and it's how people use them 
or how much weight or value we apply to them and how much we orient ourselves in our lives that becomes the problem. So money in and of itself is not corrupt, but often having too much of it will corrupt your sensibilities. Often not having enough of it will make you do anything for it. So the money is not the evil, but having too much of it, not having enough of it, and what those two things then do to how you show up in the world, that's, that's where I see the problem. Money finds me, I don't keep it. Because I have found, like, like water, like if you don't metabolize it, it's toxic. It's, 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 it's the kind of sister or brother thing we do in terms of, you know, toxicity in the culture. One is we withhold money. And so there's a scarcity in people's opportunity to, again, operationalize their commitments. But then we replace it with this mindset of hoarding money. And so it's almost like, like the mindset is get water, not to hydrate yourself, but to store it in a big you know, bin in your backyard, right? And so even when people get money, they don't use it for making their life matter in the way that only they uniquely can make matter. They use it to kind of store or, or, or you know, water uh, show gardens instead of actual, you know, uh, uh, vegetable producing gardens. This is interesting to me, Rebecca, you used the word enough. And I think for me, the way that I've been thinking about this conversation, thinking about money in the context of, of us talking about it has been around this question of enough because I'm not like UAM. Money has not found me. It's not, and I've, and I've had it and lost it and had it and lost it, right? I've had periods of time where I had more or less money and I've never been either inspired to seek it, nor has it found me. Right. And so I think a lot about money in the context of having enough money because I have had not enough money and at, at like primary levels of not enough money. And that becomes a constant thought then. Right. There's the there's a constant underlying stress, a, con- a constant underlying notion of how do I have enough money to pay the electric bill this week? How do I have enough money to make sure the water bill gets covered? And to your point, it becomes very, very difficult to start thinking about doing meaningful things in the world when you're thinking about paying the electric bill or the electric goes off. But then this question of how much is enough? And I like the way that you frame it with water. Right. Because I I suppose three gallons a day is easily too much. But where is enough? Is it a quart? Is it a quart and a half? Is it a gallon? And I have this conversation with my students a lot because I tend to work with juniors, seniors or graduate students. So they're in that transitional phase of thinking about how they're preparing themselves for this life. And, and typically thinking about it in the context of career, but in general thinking about it in, in their lives. And as they're setting out on that trajectory, money, right? Financial stability, financial security, and success, right? That tends to be how my students will characterize with their thoughts about money, like what the job I'm going to take so that I can make the money I need so that I can have financial security. And my students think about financial security a lot. and 
this question of how much, what is financially secure? <laughs> is that $70,000 a year? Is that $100,000 a year? Is it a million dollars a year? And I think it points to deeper questions, either about your saying, I love money because more money allows me to fuel more action and activity in the world around these commitments or desires that I have to, to do the things that I feel like I'm meant to do in the world. And I think there, there, there's a lot of, philo- I don't tend to think about things philosophically, but there's a lot of philosophy here of like, what is your life philosophy around? And I suppose if I had more money, I could do more. I don't know that I view the world that way. I, practically, it's true. But the way that I orient myself, it, money is not something that I think about a lot in terms of me doing meaningful things in the world. But also... It's a true both end for me because I both know that I could do more if I had more resources, but I also am not very interested in making getting those resources a threshold I have to go through in order to do the meaningful things. So it's it's an interesting challenge for me. When I say more money, I mean, again, uh, I can only drink a gallon of water a day, right? But I like three gallons of water a day, not because I'm going to find use for those extra two gallons. I know they're toxic for me because at best case scenario, I'm going to overexert myself trying to utilize all that hydration. But I like when three gallons finds me because I always have people in my network who can use a quart here, a pint there, just the nature I orient my life and the people, you know, like I've paid kids rent and I've paid grocery bills and like, and so this idea of kind of irrigate your neighbor's, you know, uh, yards, right? So, so that's what I mean by I, I like three gallons because there's always, you know, uh, the way I've oriented my life, there's always dry lands within easy reach of shipping water to, right? Again, you guys know this, like I, I grew up third world poor, right? No, no running water, no electricity, um, outhouse, um, just the whole nine yards, you know, seven of us in a 400 square foot, uh, 450 square foot place. Um, and we landed here, you know, immigrants, uh, undocumented, seven houses over the course of six years and just kind of constantly one step ahead of rent and, and, and uh, other things. And it was actually, through, and, and, you know, we were talking earlier about, about, I don't know which one of you asked about, about allowance, right? And, and I was the 13-year-old who was working two jobs at 13 to kick into the family fund, right? So it's like reverse allowance, right? But it was actually through those experiences like, you know, that your kids have, they're very legitimate that I actually came to this mindset early on, like literally my teens, like 16, 17, because I was already on my own by then financially, where it was like, great, I'm going to set a floor. I'm not setting a ceiling. I'm not setting like, okay, by the time I'm 25, I'm going to make 70,000. By the time I'm 30, I'm going to make, right? What I did is I set a floor. And so the enough thing, right? And it wasn't about dollars. It was like, what's my floor in terms of the things that dollars that you absolutely have to have dollars to buy? You know, it's like, what's my floor on lifestyle? And it was the equivalent of what I do now, you know, enough black t-shirts that I don't have to do laundry more than, you know, once a week, uh, a decent enough roof over my head, a car that, you know, will run and, you know, a few bucks for bourbon, because even back then that was part of the, uh, uh, the budget, right? So, so I hear you, it's a very versatile thing. And I think this is part of what we miss with kids and in, in, in upbringing, you know, we just keep orienting towards this where you kind of brought up earlier, Becca, right? This kind of scarcity thing and that I got to go chase and that maybe when I make it, i.e. have X amount of you know, dollars in the bank, then I can whatever, 
right? Go volunteer at the thing or go start my jazz, you know, trio or go you know, start painting or whatever that is. And it's insane. It's absolutely insane. I love what you just said. And it's really a starting place that I use with a lot of people who will, uh, in conversations, talk about how they can't afford to do a thing, whatever it might be, right? And that can be making a job change or, or starting an initiative, whatever it is, it comes in, in different forms. And that floor, very few people calculate the floor, I find. It, and it's fascinating to really um, encourage someone to take that step. Say, I, I hear what you're saying and I believe you. It's not that I disbelieve that you are not able to afford that. But just as an exercise, let's lay it out. What do you spend the money on? What, what, what money do you have? What money do you spend? How do you spend it? And what do you do? Not, in, not as a, an act of budgeting, but as an act of inquiry in a true understanding of what the resource is, right? For me, it's about uh, money as resource, and that can be resource to do what needs to be done in your own home, that the fundamentals, electric and <laughs> heat, and then the resource to go do that which we intend to do outside of our own home. And it fascinates me. And part of the reason that I really use this particular exercise with people a lot, people then do the math and they sit down and they look at it and they're like, oh shit, I actually can afford it. <laughs> like people don't realize that, oh, I'm not as financially insecure as I thought I was. And if they do find that they are indeed as financially insecure as they thought they were, now they know where the floor is, right? So they're beneath the floor. But now you have this precise number of I'm beneath the floor by $82 a week, or I'm beneath the floor by $400 a month. And then that becomes a very precise exercise in saying, how might I get $400 more a month? How might I get $82 more a week so that I have that stable floor and can have some sense of the fundamentals are taken care of, and now where do I want to go from here? And I think that there is a lot of, I don't know, there's something about that that is confidence building. It's, it's really interesting thinking about how, I don't know, the next generation is going to view money because I've been sitting in a lot of, you know, rooms with Gen Z folks talking about, you know, sort of the great resignation and why people are leaving jobs and, and what what they want out of life that's not in their mind money oriented and how they're, they want to choose jobs for purpose and all of these sort of beautiful things. And then on the flip side, I hear them talking about this sort of desire for travel and all of these things that require resources that require quite a lot of money um, that they want to be able to, you know, work from wherever so that they can be on a beach in Tahiti, you know, okay, that's great. But that also then requires money. So I'm, I'm curious to see how we're going to reconcile that, this sort of renewed desire for purpose, which I think is a beautiful thing, with this also desire for, you know, joy and pleasure and, and many of those things that we associate with that requiring quite a bit of money. I mean, Tahiti's cool, right? The beach in Tahiti's cool. It's great kite surfing in Bali and, 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 and traipsing through Paris, you know, whatever. It, it's great. But 
we kind of, it, it, we overprescribe, you know, it, the, 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 these experiences are like pharmaceutical products and we overprescribe to people what it means to lead a good life. And these things actually, and I get how privileged and, and, and just, you know, all of that, this, this statement is going to be, but they're so fucking overrated in the context of having a committed, present, happy life. They're not bad. They're absolutely not bad. But they're not the ticket to a focused, committed, happy life. There's no like this, then that. And so a lot of these, you know, kind of kind of mindsets in the society are not organic. They're not nutritional. Like that, that beach in, in Tahiti is not a nutritional thing for most people who want the beach in Tahiti. It's this drug that they've, you know, kind of been fed that this is what it is like to have a happy life. And then we create that toxicity because, listen, part of what that does is it keeps you on the wheel. You know, it keeps you on the wheel. Yeah, it's job sucks, but Tahiti before I'm 30. And then you get to Tahiti and you consume Tahiti like a jelly donut. And it's great. And it's tasty. And you come back and what's different? Well, this goes to enough, too, for me, anyway, as I think about it, is, is what, not just what is enough money, right? What is enough beach life? What is enough travel? What is, right? It, because without, and I don't mean being really uh, specific, like 18 trips by the time I'm this, it, it's, it's not that kind of enough. And, and this, it's interesting because this kind of goes back to a, a certain um, strategic approach that my parents used with us as children. And I had always suspected that it was a strategic approach. And then as an adult, I remember asking my mother about this. And their strategic approach was that Whatever the goal or the objective, that um, in essence you would never arrive. So whatever was the outcome, the output, the focus was on what was the thing beyond it that wasn't achieved. And as a result, there was always this moving target. So whatever the target was for what you would be have done that was successful. It was, you know, the kind of 99 on the algebra regions, where'd the point go? That's the story I always tell with Martin, right? So the response to the 99 on the regions was, where'd the point go? And the notion was always that if the expectation is for 20% more than I think that you can achieve, that it will always keep you moving forward. And I understand where they were coming from. I understand what they were trying to achieve on our behalf. And so, and in part... Part of the reason that I'm a scrapper, part of the reason com comes from that. But then there's a flip side to it. There's a dark side to that particular approach, which is the true carrot in front that you're always running towards something you don't achieve. And so nothing is ever enough. And so it took into my adulthood to be able to kind of process that, take, take what was wonderful about it. That was the things that motivated me and so on and so forth, but also take that recognition that having a boundless, having, having this boundless sense of what is in front of you is what success is, 
that it really leads to this idea of nothing ever being enough. And I don't think that we're unique in our family of having that particular structure around have like what will ever be enough. And there's some fear based in that, right? That hoarding we were talking about before of like hoarding water so that I make sure that at some point if the bottom falls out, I have mine. And then also this idea of, is it $100,000 a year that's enough? Is it $150,000 a year? And I sit across the table with people who are making a quarter of a million and more who, you know, we have friends who, you know, the woman wanted to stay home with her child and they were making well over $300,000 a year and could not afford to stay home for a year or two with their child. And so these who decides what affording is, like there are these big questions that I think we have to ask so that we have some boundary for the notion of what success or what enough is. Because otherwise we'll just not only never be satisfied, but we'll never stop. I, I tell the story to my, to my, to my, to my students, uh, this topic, uh, one, one of the uh, late clients I had like near the end of my practice, I did a lot of, you know, technology, pharmaceutical, financial services were the three sectors I kind of most heavily focused in. This is a one-on-one client in, in financial services and, and or like first couple of meetings, like he's tense and, you know, it's a, you know, it's a work engagement. Um, uh, he's kind of getting ready for a, a massive promotion. But, um, you know, we dig in, the tension is in his personal life. And the tension is that um, he's about to sell his house in New Canaan. And uh, he had promised his wife that when they eventually sold the house, they had it for like 10 years, that they'd be able to afford another house and a, uh, 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 a second house in, uh, on the island of Martha's Vineyard. And, his bon- and he thought with the timing of the house and the bonus, He'd be able to pull it off, but his bonus was only $1.3 million. And he was fully expecting at least two. And his tension was not artificial. It's so easy to brush that off as, oh, my God, a spoiled rich. And listen, yeah, man, spoiled rich. But, but, but the human experience he was having was the exact same human experience as somebody making 32000 a year who doesn't know if they can afford rent. Now, I'm not suggesting we feel sorry for him, right? So again, I'm not, right? I totally get it. It's a high privilege, right? But the human experience, and it's, it's, it's what you're speaking to, right? It's, it's, that's a man who, by the time 60, had never clarified for himself what's enough. And so this situation that any of us look at and say, are you kidding me? For him, because he hasn't had, doesn't have that personal clarity, never did, this becomes yet another existential threat that, oh my God, I don't have enough, to do this next thing. I was just reflecting on how different I grew up than, than what Joan was describing and how, how it all sort of applies to this idea of enough. I grew up with this idea of whatever you have is enough. That where I remember being very young and learning that there were classes and saying to my dad, which class are we? And he says to me, it doesn't matter. We're in the middle because there are people who have more. And there are people who have less. And so I grew up with this idea that you should always be aware of that and be so grateful for what you have by seeing all the people beneath you who don't have nearly what you have, whatever you have. There are people out there you have quite a bit more than, so you should be grateful for that. 
And then whenever you started to feel proud, you should look at those who have more and stay humble because, you know, you, you could be doing better. So it was this idea of being grateful right where you were because you had more than you had more than some and you have less than others and, and whatever you have, you then work within it. You then budget within it. So I, at various times in my life, have lived on very different salaries. You know, I mean, I worked for nonprofits in my early 20s and I learned, you know, how to how to make that work. You know, how you live within a, a very small salary. And then when I had more, I learned how you live within within that budget as well. And so that's just sort of always been my approach is what are my resources? Okay, now I allocate within those of, you know, what the priorities are. And if I'm doing really well in my career at this moment, then great, I can have designer things. And if I'm not, that's okay. Now we can buy our clothes somewhere else or, or not buy things. That's just the way I've sort of always been, been oriented. So affluent poverty is, is, is the phrase I gave you know, when I kind of just was, again, I, I just made a bunch of life philosophy decisions in my teens. Like I just, you know, came from parents who just were just, the entire arc was just struggle, not a necessity. And I just decided I was going to have a, you know, not a plan, but a philosophy. A kind of, so it's kind of the idea of affluent poverty. And uh, I, am, I, am, I am, if not the, one of the most affluent people you ever meet. Like my mindset is like, I understand what affluence is to me. It is just the freedom of mobility and the freedom of spirit and human relationship. It's what I had when I was three years old living without plumbing. I never want to go back there, but I had the most beautiful human relationships. And, it, and if you would ask me at three years old, to your point, are we poor? Are we, I'd say, I, yeah. like I knew there was stuff we couldn't get. I knew I had to go, you know, outside to relieve myself, but it was affluent. I mean, the, my grandfather, my grandma, like that environment, I was effing rich, right? And so as a philosophy of always make sure you stay affluent in your experience of life, but then live as if you were poor, right? Just don't like, just don't hoard shit. Don't just pretend like you can't even afford to hoard shit. Pretend like you can't even just, you know, and if you too much, you get three gallons of water, give it away. I'm not suggesting everyone should live that way, but somewhere between that and what you said around how you grew up around just whatever I have is enough. Like these sort of philosophies, I mean, the benefit of, of, of teaching these things to young people, you know, in terms of what kind of society it might hatch 30 years from now is one thing, but just to give them a place to just kind of like unburden so much of the shit they pick up in the society around these kind of conversations, I think is, is, really, really critical um, among the many critical things we need to do with young people, you know, is this kind of what you, how you grew up, right? What I have is enough. Doesn't mean I don't strive for more, but what I have is enough. I think that what you both described is not something that I had as a young person, right? So to underscore what you're saying, the importance of it, because I'm an example of someone who did not have it. And so uh, the notion that what I had was not enough was very, very present with me for, for really definitely through my, through my 20s and, and I would say into my 30s. And also the notion that of really conspicuous consumption when we did start to get some resources. You know, we built the big house with the cobblestone driveway and the pillars at the end and that, and it was 
bigger than we needed, brick front, et cetera, because that was what making it was. And I think both myself and my husband had that that notion of, of you know, the, we bought, we definitely drank the Kool-Aid of the society in that way and then had a turn and wound up going the other way. And so we, um, I, I can see how, it makes sense to me that people take that approach. I, I really understand it. I understand it at a very deep level because I have walked that journey. And then I understand how very, very difficult it is to turn it when you didn't kind of get it as a young person and, and start with that philosophy. It's almost like uh, the difference between having to renovate a house and build it from scratch it's much easier in many ways to build a house from scratch than it is to renovate an old house to, <laughs> to meet new uh, needs. And I think that being in your late 20s or your early 30s or, or your 40s and now starting to have those kind of philosophies and principles and turn that boat in the water, it's not impossible. It's clearly not. And I think it's really valuable to do it. But getting to people early and helping people to recognize, oh, so part of me thinking about my career trajectory and success and what is enough is developing a philosophy around these things, is understanding what I think is enough and what isn't enough, is getting grateful for what I have and recognizing that it can be more, but it doesn't have to be more and that my identity is not tied to it. That's so, that's currency. <laughs> that's currency that you can then work with. And, you know, my bias is always toward orientation. And it's also that which we can orient ourselves to when the world is changing around us. It gives us some, some way to catch our bearings. And in a similar way, I think people find it, you know, unfortunately at the end of their lives, you know, that life was a, uh, uh, this isn't mine, I heard somebody else say this, that life is a, 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 an RPG game, a reality player game, uh, and, and they've been collecting the wrong uh, 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 gems throughout the game, and all that currency didn't matter. It goes back to what Joan was saying about orientation, right? I mean, I think my orientation in this project, in this initiative, is this relationship between the three of us. It's dialogue. It's, it's writing more. Those for me are the reasons to do it, not, not for money. That's my orientation here, learning, growth, and relationship. And I, I think that's my general orientation in life. Those are the things that really interest me, you know, learning, community, and, and, and growth, kind of becoming a better person, and um, showing up in an interesting way in the world. And so we designed this experiment in a way that it doesn't cost any money. Everything is us writing, you know, doing things ourselves. And it doesn't make any money, but uh, it adds value, I hope, to each of our lives and whoever happens to read it. Thank you for spending some time with us in this conversation. If you have any comments on what you've heard, we'd love to hear from you. The best way to do that is on Clubhouse. We run a live social audio conversation on Thursdays at noon Eastern time. Visit us at ajar.substack.com for a link to that Clubhouse room, as well as all of the Ajar articles and information on upcoming events.